Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18 in your pew Bible. That's page 133. We're starting a new series on prayer this week. I'm very excited about this series. I hope that we learn several things during this series. Uh, I hope that I can answer some of your questions. I hope that um, you can um, be a, a more frequent and a bolder prayer giver. Uh, so what is prayer? That's an interesting question. In our culture, you'll find people who think it is more like meditation or just quieting your soul, and to some degree it is. For others, prayer is just sending good vibes. For others, it's a very mystical thing where you connect with the universe. Uh, there are people also who think that prayer is more like battle, and to a large degree it is. There's a Christian movie that came out a few years ago called War Room, and I liked it. It showed the biggest prayer warrior as this little old lady, and on the football field, she'd be in danger, but in her prayer room, if she was praying for you, you'd better watch out. Many people think of prayer as a very private matter, and it is, even biblically. However, in the Bible, there are many public prayers given for the benefit of the hearers. So it is our doctrine of prayer. A simple understanding and a simple, uh, simple understandings are usually the best is that prayer is communicating with God. And Christian doctrine has this description of God called the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when you're praying, you're involving the whole Trinity, and I want to show you how. The Godhead, and that is the word that we use when we want to talk about God generally, but we also want to recognize that He exists in a Trinity, one God, three persons. So when you pray, you are communicating with the whole Godhead. Uh, the New Testament pattern, and I shared this in a video in our newsletter a couple of weeks ago, John Piper pointed out that the New Testament pattern of prayer is this. You are talking to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit in you through the agency of Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. So God the Father is the one upon whom you cast your cares and burdens. The Holy Spirit is your in your heart is your radio, and there used to be this old gospel song called Turn Your Radio On, um, by which you communicate with him. So you, the Holy Spirit is this this connection that we have uh, with God. And then Jesus Christ is the agent between us and God acting as a mediator. Jesus is our only access to God. That's why we say, in Jesus' name I pray, at the end of, of a prayer. If you've ever left that off a prayer, don't think that God didn't hear you or anything like that. But one of the things I want to emphasize in all of this series is that when you pray, you are talking to someone who loves you and cares for you. You're not applying for a grant, and if you didn't sign something properly or check all the boxes, your application is rejected. No, you're talking to someone who loves you and wants to hear from you. And doing things just so is less important, but respecting how God made a way for you to connect with Him is key. And Jesus is the, your connection uh, with God. He made it possible for the relationship to be restored. Uh, before Jesus died on the cross, before you were a believer, God is at enmity with you. You and Him are having estrangement, but Jesus made it possible. And now He is your mediator uh, between you and God. God loves you, but he loves you because you have been forgiven through Christ's work on the cross. Also, we're going to end our sermon time each week with a time of prayer, so be ready to bow your head and pray at the end of each sermon. Probably only once I'll ask you to do it out loud, and that'll be a couple of weeks from now. Um, you'll be a prayer warrior by then, though, and up to the task, so don't worry about it. So let me ask you this question. Uh, 
Who do you want to be in absolute sovereign control of your life? Now, most of us want to be in control of our own destinies. Most of us don't want to be controlled by another person. We don't mind having people in our lives who need us, and most of us are okay with a certain amount of self-sacrifice. But if someone was your total master, and they told you where you had to live, what you had to do for work, and what you had to eat, and what you had to wear, where, what, uh, where you had to sleep, and and how you had to think and feel about everything, you'd rebel against that person. I mean, that sounds like slavery, right? And we never really stop being teenagers. Teenagers at a certain age begin to desire a greater sovereignty and control over their own lives. They want to go to bed whenever they want to. They want to wear whatever they want to. And they want to have full control over their own personal schedule and over the media that they uh, intake. They want to do what they want and they want to uh, do they don't want to do what anybody wants them to do just because that person wants them to do it. No, no, no. And I have those same feelings myself. The only, the only time I don't have those feelings is when I worship. I mean truly worship. And when I don't know what I want or when I can't fulfill what I want in those moments, that's when I know I need God. Any other time, I generally want a certain degree of sovereignty over myself. It's hard for me to surrender all of that. But I know when I'm not sufficient, when I can't do, when I don't know. In those moments, I want God to intervene. I want him to tell me what to do. And I want him to give me the confidence that he'll, it'll all turn out well if I give that thing over to him. So at the core of, of the question of prayer to me is, when you aren't powerful enough or wise enough to do what needs to be done in your life or the life of someone you care about, who or what do you turn to? In the Old Testament, when God was creating the nation of Israel and setting them up as a people and a culture and a political entity, he gave them three offices of people to serve them as rulers and governors and guides. Uh, first, he gave them the priesthood. One, one tribe out of the 12 tribes of Israel was set apart to serve uh, the whole nation as priests. They were called the Levites. These priests would be guides for everyone. They would teach them the law. They would arbitrate disputes. They would be overseers and even like doctors on some occasions, in addition to being their mediator between God and the people. The book of Leviticus is written specifically for the priests. When you read Leviticus, and I recommend that you read it among the last books of the Bible that you read, but you need to read it like you're a Levite, a new priest, and you're wondering what a priest does. What does a priest do? Uh, the book of Leviticus tells you it doesn't have many stories. It has instructions on what you are to do as a priest. Uh, the second governing entity besides the priesthood was the kingship, the monarchy. The kings weren't set up immediately, and that's sort of a whole different sermon, but the kings were there to be warrior kings and to protect the people. Uh, the priests weren't really there for national security. Uh, there were judges in the beginning. Uh, they were sort of warriors. They were more like warriors than just judges sitting on benches with robes and gavels. Uh, but when the judges weren't good enough, then there were kings. And the priests didn't do the king's jobs, and the kings didn't do the priest's jobs. And when you read the books of Samuel and Kings, uh, you can pick up that there's a kind of a rival a rivalry between the priests and kings for who is the most powerful person in the country. And they were institutions with hereditary title. If you were a Levite, you worked in the tabernacle or the temple. And if you were from the clan of Aaron, you were a priest. If you were the son of David, you were part of the royal family. But there was another group too, the prophets. And they weren't from any particular tribe or family or clan. Their parents weren't necessarily prophets. Prophets, true prophets, were called by the Lord himself to share God's word. 
So sometimes a priest was a prophet like Isaiah, and sometimes a king prophesied like David or even Saul. But many prophets came from nowhere and simply declared the word of the Lord like Amos or even John the Baptist. So in ancient Israel, when you needed help, when you couldn't handle your own life, when powers beyond your control were affecting you, you had three groups of people to appeal to, to get help from and connect you with God. The king helped you when the Philistines were raiding your village. The priests helped you, helped you when you made a vow or had a, a prayer request or became unclean or needed to judge between you and a neighbor or when you wanted to worship or celebrate a holiday. And when you had a real problem that needed a miracle or a question that you needed answers to, you went to the prophets and they gave you the word of God. And we are uh, sort of the same way. When we have a problem, you, sometimes you go to the town office, the government, or court if it's serious enough. You appeal to your congressional representatives, or you go to your clergy for answers. They teach you the word of God as given in the Bible. They perform ceremonies for your life's major events. And when you need a miracle, you go to the prayer warriors. You go to the strongest Christians you know. You go to people that you've heard from others. Their prayers get answered, and they, get, they really hear from God. They've got the hotline to heaven. And folks, there's always this temptation to be either distracted from God or go to someone else or to doubt that God will really give you the answer you desire. So you find other options, either scientific or philosophical or even spiritual. And let's read now this Old Testament, this obscure sort of Old Testament passage that you've probably never read and certainly probably never heard a sermon about and you probably don't even think of it as being relevant to your life today. But let's see what God says about going else anywhere else uh, but him for help. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9. Lord, teach us from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Now, I, think, I, know, I know what you're thinking. Wes, do you seriously, seriously think that in this church we have a problem with these kinds of things? Well, yes and no. I certainly don't think that there's anyone here engaging in human sacrifice. And I don't think we have witches here either. But these things still exist today. We have a man in our church who used to be uh, a Wiccan. He used to practice these kinds of things. You can think it's just hocus-pocus nonsense if you want, but there are several main streets in Maine where you can get a psychic reading or have someone use tarot cards to tell you your fortune. People often have the idea that New England is full of very stoic and secular people, and that's true enough. But what you also have here is the total end of, other end of the spectrum, too. A lot of pseudo-Christian fringe religions in the United States actually started up here, too. And I've met people here who go to seances. And even if you don't know anybody who does those kinds of things, and even if you don't believe there's any power in them, even if you're one of the enlightened, very scientifically-minded New Englanders who are stoic and totally materialistic, with little belief in the spiritual realm, you're still tempted to not consult God for all the matters in your life. For growth in biblical matters, you might be tempted to lean on the teachings of your favorite spiritual leader and not God. 
For matters of health, you might be tempted to lean totally on what a recent medical fad says and not even pray about the matter because you got all the pills or essential oils that you need. And I'm not trying to insult healthy living, but there are fads in everything else, even medicine. And there are just as many snake oil salesmen out there now as there ever have been. And let me just say that if you are sick, say a prayer and go to the doctor. I'm not advocating spirit and mind over body. That's what one of the New England pseudo-religion, false religions says. No, I think that you need to uh, sort of do the heavenly thing and do the earthly thing. Talk to God and talk to your doctor. When I was studying missions and when I went to Ivory Coast in 1998, the missionaries there emphasized what the essence of animism is. Animism is the spiritist-type religion that is practiced in Africa and in a lot of the world. There are these five major religions in the world where it's Judaism, uh, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, these major world religions. But there's another world religion out there that people don't really talk about, people don't really know how to define, but it is uh, actually probably more pervasive than any of the other five major world religions, and it also syncretizes with them as well. And it's called animism. And animism is the type of religion that's uh, practiced a lot in, in Africa and in Haiti, and some people just call it voodoo, and that's kind of what it is. Voodoo is animism, but animism is bigger than voodoo. And in animism, there is a God who created all things, but he's not really involved. It's the lesser gods and spirits that control day-to-day -day life. And appeasing and manipulating those spirits is what animism is. So you offer a little animal sacrifices or you put up a little idol and you feed it or you do certain dances and you can manipulate the spirits to get them to do what you want. And you can laugh or snicker all you want, but we often treat God the same way. We often think that if we can pray the right formula or give the right gift or deny ourselves some sort of vice, and that should mean, that should mean that God will pay more attention to us or deem us worthy of answering a prayer or we paid whatever price is uh, is there, uh, and he should now uh, complete the transaction. Praying scripture is actually something that people promote, and I don't think it's a bad practice either, but if you pray scripture because you think that those prayers have more power or more influence or whatever, then I think you're praying scripture the wrong way. God is not a spirit who needs to be controlled. God is not a vendor from whom blessings can be purchased by a gift or donation or a devotion or a, a vow. Uh, God is your heavenly Father. He gives good gifts, and he doesn't give bad gifts. He has a plan for your life, and he doesn't want to be your helper while you live out the life that you have planned for yourself. He wants to be sovereign over your life. When you pray, do not think of God as someone you have to appease or bribe in order to get what you want. When you pray, worship God and tell God what you need or want, and then he'll let you know whether or not that is a good thing for you to have or not. If he indicates uh, to you it's not a good thing, then you must trust him that it's not a good thing for you. And that's when you'll be tempted to go somewhere else, to another source. But don't go to another source. Let God mold you and make you into the kind of person who doesn't want unhealthy things and who can uh, help you cope with a life that doesn't contain all the things that you want. I believe God wants the best for you. I believe he wants good things for you. I believe he wants unlimited spiritual blessings for you and a very decent amount of material blessings for you, even on this earth, that we will have all of, uh, of life and uh, we will all have to live without something in this life. 
But most of all, I believe that he wants you to have abundant joy in him in this life. God is not a God of denial. He's a God of gifts. So it's time for us to throw away all the safety nets that we put in place just in case God doesn't deliver. It's time for us to close our accounts with all other blessing vendors in the world and depend completely on God our Father. It's time for us to have only one access to the spiritual realm, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't even want to tell you that the sorcery that still exists in New England and the rest of the world today doesn't have any power behind it. I think it does. But that power didn't create you. It can't forgive and redeem you. It didn't send its son to die on the cross for your sins. It has limited power, not unlimited power. It has limited knowledge, not all knowledge. The same goes for the world of science. It doesn't care because it's not a good, good father. In Acts chapter 19, Paul led a group of converts who came out of sorcery to burn their books of incantation and their spell books. And they began to trust Jesus with their lives and futures. They are our example. Put away whatever other thing you trust and trust Jesus. Look at this verse, Acts 19.18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. They believed in the power of the spiritual realms these people did, but they made exclusive commitment to Jesus and repented quite publicly of their sin of sorcery. Incidentally, the, the amount of money that it says was 50,000 days wages, that's 136 years of work. If a good job in the United States pays $100 a day, then just add a couple of zeros and you get $5 million. They burned $5 million worth of trust in the wrong God and received back an internal life's worth of trust and the right God. And I especially appreciate that they they didn't sell their uh, scrolls to other non-believers to try to get their money back. The first part of an effective prayer life is to know that God only wants to answer your prayers if he has exclusive rights to your life and heart. He commits. He doesn't want to be one of the many sources that you go to. He wants to be the source and the only source. So your first lesson in prayer is that there's only one for you to pray to. Let the others go. Let me lead you now in a time of prayer. Please bow your head and silently pray a prayer which includes these elements. Acknowledge that God is mighty, wise, good, and supreme in all the universe. Admit and confess that you have trusted things other than him when you should have trusted him alone. Ask forgiveness for it. Ask him to help you trust him more. Uh, more help him to tr- ask you. Ask him to help you trust him more and other things less. Ask God to teach you how to pray, and ask the Holy Spirit to remind you to pray. And end your prayer by saying, "In Jesus' name, I pray," because He is my only access to God the Father. And then say, "Amen." The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. You are dismissed.